Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we welcome back to our show State Representative Patricia Duffy, who is the representative from the 5th Hamden District. That's the technical and actually correct name. It is the district that is Holyoke plus one precinct in Chicopee. It is known traditionally as the Holyoke District, one of the very few in the states where a state representative represents one municipality. Patricia Duffy, Representative Duffy, really appreciate your time. I would note for our listeners who are not as familiar with Representative Duffy as perhaps some of our other local electeds and uh, part and, and, and members of the delegation that she was the longtime uh, staffer for State Representative uh, Aaron Vega, who was with us yesterday, a longtime labor leader before that as well. Representative Duffy, I'd like to extend to you uh, our condolences over the recent shooting in Holyoke. I know you are deeply involved with this community and have been for years and years, and I do want to talk to you about some of the policy issues that are raised by this yep. recent shooting. But before that, I would appreciate it if you share with us how this has affected you personally and the community. Sure thing, sure thing. Um, thank you so much. Uh, well, I assume everyone knows what happened, that there was a terrible, uh, it's a terrible incident in any case, just um, young men fighting in the streets at a major intersection. But, you know, as we've all always feared could happen, a stray bullet ended up um, hitting a passing bus, uh, hitting a woman who is eight months pregnant, and she did lose her baby. Uh, she she was critically injured, but I've I've heard recently that um you know it looks like she's going to be on the mend, which thank God for that. Um, yeah, just gut wrenching. I was actually in the state house on Wednesday. Uh, I heard about it, and on the drive home, uh, my uh, my aide, who uh, is city councilor Juan Anderson Burgos. Uh, we were just reaching out to folks um, on our drive home. I, I spoke with the mayor, um, and yeah, it's just it's it really highlights all the uh, useless pain that comes with this escalating violence. I mean, you know, both Holyoke and Springfield have really experienced an increase in gun violence this year. I know other parts of the state and the country have as well. Um, yeah. Any thoughts about why why there has been this increase in gun violence in Holyoke and Springfield, and to be sure other places as well, but it is marked how dramatic yeah. the increase is in both Holyoke and Springfield. Springfield in particular. I mean, yeah, actually, to tell you the truth, Springfield in particular, but uh, definitely Holyoke too. I think the tie between the two communities it's a um in a lot of ways it's the same um crime activity going on in both communities you know there's a it's there's certainly no giant wall between holyoke and springfield uh so so i think the activity is pretty porous and uh you know springfield's a bigger city and has had more incidents should we could like dial way back and I, you know, I'm a sociologist by training. I'm a big believer that, you know, generations of poverty closed down people's 
ideas of what their options are and black market activity becomes, you know, seems uh, the uh, the most available um, option. You can dial way back to that, uh, you know, as far as, I mean, I guess I'd get the Nobel Prize if I could, if I could exactly pinpoint. Um, But yeah, I think generations of uh, systemic racism, inequality, poverty, closed off opportunities are just are going to accumulate in uh, folks undesirable options. But that said, Representative, I think it was 2016 where there were no homicides in Holyoke. And so there has been an increase in recent years, which I would suspect we would attribute to uh, drugs and the proliferation and the availability of guns and as well perhaps the fact that guns can be manufactured without being traceable, so-called ghost guns. And, uh, and I'm wondering whether you think that, in particular, the increase in the availability of drugs, in particular fentanyl, and uh, the availability of uh, guns, the lethal combination drugs and guns, what your thoughts are about that? Well, sure. Those are both really terrible uh, trends that, um, you know, that have been coming for, you know, I think the appearance, what was the appearance of fentanyl, ballparking it, it really starts to escalate around 2010, I think. Um, You know, it's cheap and highly addictive. That's a huge problem. Uh, The proliferation of guns. Now, I... I don't know that in this particular crime uh, there's been a um, that the guns involved were manufactured in any way, uh, but there's definitely been a, a, an increase in uh, the availability of guns. Um, what you know, sometimes um, speaking to the younger generations, and now you know, at my age, there's lots of younger generations. Sometimes I'll talk with folks and I'll be like, you know, we had fights when in the 70s and 80s when I was in public school, but people weren't pulling out guns. <laughs> so um, that's certainly a, a disturbing trend. Um, I think it was, you know, 2016 was a that it was a, you know, sure there weren't any murders in Holyoke. There was violent crime though. Um, it's, yeah, it's two trends that have been escalating, and we've got to we've got to put a stop to it. Let me ask you to turn your attention, if we might, Representative Duffy, to the recently proposed legislation about mm-hmm. guns in Massachusetts, yep. because as we spoke, and as Rep- Rep- former Representative Aaron Vega said to us yesterday on the show, it's not a simple problem. It's a complicated problem with a lot of factors, guns and drugs. That said, uh, the state can do, uh, can take various actions with regard to the availability of guns. And there is legislation that has been introduced. It's been, uh, it's been bandied about the legislature for a long time. Can you tell us what the legislation uh, proposes, whether you think it will pass and what you think it will do? So, uh, as a matter of fact, it, it was um, this latest uh, piece of legislation has been um, 
you know, sort of back and forth uh, over the past couple of months, past three months. And uh, recently there, there is a recent revision um, revision of that gun legislation. And uh, at 11 o'clock today, I am through the power of um, uh, Microsoft Teams joining a hearing on that piece of legislation today. Uh, it's being held in the state house, but I, I couldn't get into Boston today, um, but I'm participating uh, remotely in that hearing. And I think two of the most important provisions in this is if you look at our red flag laws, uh, this legislation um, increases the uh, number of folks who can report that they feel they know somebody who is a gun owner and is mentally unstable, frankly, you know, ha has um, and, you know, that goes under judicial review and it, it gives uh, the local police the the um, ability to to temporarily take somebody's gun away from them. I, you know, that those um, those crimes of passion, uh, the domestic partner, really terrorism, I, I think that's some of the most terrible gun violence we see. Uh, and I think I'm I greatly support that 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 uh, widening of the circle of, of folks who can uh, report that. So it's there. It's called ERPO, Extreme Risk Protection Order, and they're often referred to as red flag laws. So that's one aspect of this proposed yep. legislation. Uh, are there other aspects that you're... Yes. Yes. There, and the other important aspect is trying to wrap our hands around the um, this new ability to manufacture guns. Um, they're, they're often called ghost guns. And it's getting really technical, but it's um, saying that not only do you have to register and um, put get a serial number for for any gun that is in your possession, um, but it also like pieces of the gun. Um, we're now getting like a little past my technical <laughs> knowledge, but I know that that's part of the um, the manufacturing of these guns is that you can put different pieces together and change the very nature of the gun. And so it, it would require like registration and serialization of all these um different aspects of the gun. There's other provisions that are not at my fingertips right now. I'm looking forward to this hearing um, that would uh, address this, the manufacturing of guns. I think that those are two really important places where we, I mean, Massachusetts has really good um, gun control legislation, um, but those are two places where we can really address increase. And Massachusetts, in fact, as I understand it, has the lowest gun violence, gun death statistics in the country because of those laws. Is that... I think so. Yeah. I, I think that it's because of that, those gun laws. And also because we're surrounded by states with similar, um, with similar legislation. Let me go back to this question of this most recent shooting where so, an innocent person sitting yes. on a bus, eight months yes. pregnant, was hit yes. by a bullet, a stray bullet, in what appears to be a dispute between individuals, perhaps gangs. I'm wondering how you feel this has affected the community. 
well, Holyoke is a remarkable city. Uh, so, you know, we face our share of challenges and uh, we faced our share of crises and we just always pull together. Like there will be debates. The, um, the mayor is proposing, you know, he's putting forth and working on uh, 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 an emergency response plan. He's asking for more funding for um, policing. And there will be a, a healthy debate with our city council on, like, what exactly that's going to look like. Um, I, as, a, as a member of the state delegation, I, you know, I've already said I'm going to kick in where I can and um, see what support and funding and resources we can get from the state as well. I know the, the, um, the governor... Uh, did reach out directly to the mayor. I had colleagues all over the state um, reach out to me, so I think there will be support there. Uh, but we pulled together. I mean, there was a March for Peace on Sunday. Um, the mayor held a press conference. There, uh, the very next day, many of us were there. We, you know, we pulled together. It's a really beautiful city. We are speaking with State Representative Patricia Duffy. We'll be right back with more with the representative after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money, which is true. But as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive that are racist where the heart of the pioneer valley lives 1015 and 1400 whmp news information and the arts what's cooking at river valley co-op here's avid eater grocery shopper and co-op member bill newman rutabagas sweet potatoes turnips and leeks local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day at the co-op meat counter try coffee rubbed hanger steak a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat new recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department river valley co-op wild about local everyone is welcome the future of joint pain relief is here. It's QC Kinetics, advanced regenerative medicine. This is amazing stuff. If you've been told more steroids or surgery are your only options, don't move so fast. Get a second opinion and learn more about how you can harness your body's own healing agents to attack that joint pain. I'm talking about lasting relief. QC Kinetics doesn't mask the pain. These treatments go to the very root of the problem. Using concentrated healing properties placed directly in your aching joints to restore and repair that damaged tissue. Imagine living your life this fall with no more pain in your knees, hips, shoulder, or back and without drugs, downtime, or surgery. Listen, life is about motion and QC Kinetics is giving people their lives back with these all-natural treatments. Call the local medical professionals and get a free consultation today. QC Kinetics, the nation's leader in regenerative medicine. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with State Representative, State Representative Pat Duffy, Patricia Duffy, who represents the 5th Hamden District. That's Holyoke, Bus 1 Precinct in Chicopee, traditionally known as the Holyoke District. We are going to be speaking with the representative about the Cherish Act and the schools being in receivership 
and how they get out. We're going to also talk about this recent tax package. But first, Buzz, you have a follow-up with regard to the conversation we've been having about guns. I do, and I'm so grateful that Representative Duffy is here because I've been trying to understand this. Um, Representative, there's I'm, I'm just going to summarize very briefly that among the proposals that I see before the House uh, and the legislature as a whole is a law that would ban firing guns near homes, uh, prohibit carrying guns into schools or government buildings or polling places, um, that would outlaw carrying firearms while you're intoxicated, that would require, as you were discussing earlier, gun components be serialized and then registered, and that would create a tracking system. There are all these different bills that are pending that I see on the legislature's website involving uh, gun laws in response, and many of them, in response to the United States Supreme Court's 2022 ruling that allowed Americans, it gave the, it recognized the right to carry firearms at all times. So my question to you is, are all these disparate bills going to remain standalone bills? And when you have this hearing today, are they all going to be under discussion? I don't know that they're all going to be under discussion today, but but um, over a series of committee hearings, that's often uh, that. In fact, 99 percent of the time, that's uh, usually how we um, come up with finalized legislation. Uh, you know, as legislators, the 200 of us will file over like 5000 bills. And that's what the committee process is all about is a committee will, you know, hear um similar bills and uh, and often package them together and come up with an omnibus bill. Like when you see a bill that comes to the House floor that we're debating, the author of it, you, if you look at it, it's often one of the joint committees is actually the, is the author of the bill. So yeah, all of those components, I'm sure, will be taken under consideration. And we'll, we'll, when, when it comes to the House floor, I imagine it will be like a larger omnibus bill. Rep. Duffy, the Senate and the House have been at odds over gun legislation, as I understand it, for a number of months now. Is that uh, conflict going to be reconciled so that some legislation, in fact, will be passed and get to the governor's desk? I'm I'm pretty – one never knows for sure, but I'm pretty optimistic that it will, yes, because uh, the Senate president has said that she imagines her chamber will be um, – will um, – be bringing something to uh, the Senate floor for debate and um, passage. And then you'll see, you know, as you often see, um, there will be a conference committee and uh, we'll, we'll vote on the compromise package. And I'll say like, it often, it can feel like a frustrating process, but I really, it's a good process. You know, that's how like you talk stuff out. I mean, legislation is about compromise. We do represent the entire Commonwealth and, uh, yeah, so I think when when our conference committee reports come out, I, I think they're good bills. And Representative Patricia Duffy, if people want to watch the hearing today or any hearing, how do they connect to that? MALegislature.gov. Uh, and the very front page, you'll see a, um, a thing that says events, and you just click right on it. And so the... Um, the hearing on uh, the gun reform legislation starts at 11 o'clock today. Uh, so I'll be in like a little Teams uh, meeting for it because as a committee member, um, you know, so we can like chit chat. 
uh, but the, you can watch a live stream of the uh, of the whole hearing. And what committee is hearing this bill? It is a a, a joint hearing uh, between House Ways and Means Committee, and that's um, the committee I'm on, and the Judiciary. House Ways and Means, of course, is crucial in getting legislation through the through through the legislature. I would like to ask you about another topic, if I might, Representative Duffy, uh, and that's the Cherish Act, which is in front of the legislature, which among its provisions addresses the question of receivership of school systems. The Holyoke school system has been in receivership, which means as a practical matter that the state has been running the school system for many years now. The mayor has come out very strongly uh, and let me summarize it. I think the mayor said, "Enough is enough. Time for us. To, <laughs> not time for us to have our school system back under local control." I'm wondering if you can tell us about the prospects of the Cherish Act, uh, and in particular that provision of it. Uh, well, I'm feeling optimistic about the overall Cherish Act. It's uh, it's a it's a large bill. Um, I'm sure there will be compromise and debate over certain aspects of it, but we had uh, the the hearing before the committee on higher ed. Uh, so uh, myself, uh, I co-filed the bill. Myself, my colleague um, Sean Garbley, and um, our Senate colleague Jake Oliveira, uh, and uh, Senator Joe Comerford also filed the bill. But she was chairing the uh, she was chairing the committee hearing. So um, so we all testified. Um, we had our many colleagues who are co-sponsors standing behind us. Um, so I'm optimistic it is an ambitious bill and it will be uh, expensive. You know, our investment in public higher education is important. Uh, I think it should be a top priority. Uh, so, you know, I'm hoping for a model that looks like the Student Opportunity Act, the K through 12 um, funding reform, you know, we can like work on it in stages. The Holyoke Public Schools, I'm hoping the Holyoke Public Schools have a path out of receivership before we even finalize the Cherish Act or the Thrive Act, um, which also calls for an end to receivership. Uh, I, com- The school committee and the mayor, uh, the mayor, who is, of course, the chair of the school committee, they have said that they feel they're ready to take back control. I um, I completely support them on, in that. And uh, I uh, also, I'll say this um, particular administration, I, I don't think is interested in taking over school districts. So I'm, I'm feeling optimistic that there will be a path out. A path out in the foreseeable future. I know we keep asking this question, but are we talking about uh, a stopwatch, a, a weekly calendar, a yearly calendar? <laughs> what are we talking about here? I don't think it will happen this school year. I, but I'm, I'm, I. Okay, this is just me. Nobody has told me this, but um, I'm hoping that by the end of the school year, we know the date. Okay. Let me turn to one other topic that I would like to have your perspective on, Rep. Duffy, and that is the new legislation just passed and signed by the governor, which has been touted as a tax relief bill. There are some provisions of it that are uh, significantly advantageous for short-term stock traders uh, and that reduce the and give favorable tax treatment to short-term capital gains. I'm wondering what your perspective is on the bill as a whole. 
the bill as a whole, I'm highly in favor of. There's, you know, there's great, uh, there's the child independent tax credits. There's uh, an increase in senior circuit uh, breaker. There's uh, there's an increase in the rental deduction cap. Um, you know, the other piece that I'm also in favor of is um, increasing the uh, the uh, cap or ceiling, whatever, for um, the estate tax. You know, real estate is so expensive, like people can hit that cap really, uh, really quickly. Um, I'm also highly in favor of the Housing Development Incentive Program. It's for gateway cities. Uh, you know, we have developers come into our cities and it's tough to make the finances work because we here out in the gateway cities, uh, folk, folks do not get as much um, bang for their buck, but it costs just as much to redevelop uh, and rehab our beautiful uh, mills and old houses that are the beautiful bones of our gateway cities. That being said, developers do not get the same return on it. So I'm a big believer in um, that, uh, that, uh, tax uh, incentive program. Um, the capital gains tax, I mean, it, some of this is like, I mean, I, I, I don't have those kind of finances, so I don't 100% understand uh, the difference that it makes. It was a compromise. Um, the House did want to uh, tax capital gains uh, at 5%, which is the same as our income tax. Uh, and uh, but the Senate, uh, they, there was a compromise, and so capital gains are now going to be taxed at 8.5% um, as opposed to 12%. I mean, I will say Massachusetts was sort of an outlier there. Sometimes I'm proud of the fact that Massachusetts is an outlier. Um, sometimes sometimes I'm like, eh. <laughs> uh, so, you know, you compromise. Compromise. Representative Duffy, we really appreciate your time and perspective today. Patricia Duffy is the representative for the 5th Hamden District. That's Holyoke, plus one precinct in Chicopee. Rep. Duffy, we really appreciate your time and insight. Thank you so very much. Oh, always great to be here. Thank you so much. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A public hearing will be held today at the State House to discuss a redrafted gun reform bill. The bill has been months in the making, and it includes tracking and tracing weapons, as finding where illegal weapons are coming from will help get them off the streets. Also in the bill is a process for ensuring training for firearm owners and clarity on where the weapons may be carried. Several peace organizations gathered last night in Northampton to condemn the violence against the Israeli and Palestinian people. Massachusetts Peace Action hosted the rally along with local Palestinians called Rally for Palestinian Rights and Sovereignty. The group is calling on the U.S. to stop giving aid to Israel. Residents at the Walter Salvo House in Northampton are dealing with a bed bug infestation. Northampton Housing Authority Executive Director Kara Leeper tells Mass Live they are heat-treating apartments and are doing their best to keep it under control. The laundry and community rooms have been closed to prevent further spread. Hadley is reevaluating costs for a new DPW headquarters. 
The select board will now ask residents to approve a $225,000 appropriation to pay for a project manager and schematic designs rather than pay for a $3 million outlay. An open house is scheduled Saturday from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. at the current DPW so residents can learn about current conditions. And police are investigating a three-car accident in Chicopee this morning that has shut down a portion of Granby Road. No word yet on any injuries. Mixture of sun and clouds today with a chance for a few sprinkles or light showers in the afternoon, a high of 60 to 64. Scattered clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 50s, an overnight low of 38 to 44. Mostly sunny tomorrow, 64 to 68, partly to mostly sunny on Thursday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. You want the very best opportunities for your child. Given the amount of time children spend in school each day, you want your child to be inspired, to be engaged, to love going to school. At Bement, each student experiences this every day. The Bement School in Deerfield is a close-knit community of students from around the valley and across the globe. Kindergarten through ninth grade, learning from each other in the classroom, rooting for each other on the athletic field, and celebrating each other on the stage. We are local, we are global, and our differences make us stronger. We interact face-to-face, -face, share meals together every day, and open doors for one another. The true essence of your child's time at Bement is preparing for a life of integrity, of significance, of joy. Financial aid and transportation are available to help make a Bement school education possible. I'm Kim Laughlin, Director of Admission. Please contact me or visit our website. Bement will be the best investment you make in your child's future. Today and every day, millions of people do business with co-ops. October is co-op month. Go co-op, and together we can build resilient, inclusive communities. Oxbow Design Build Co-op. Design and construction of furniture, residential, and commercial spaces. Pedal People Cooperative, the worker-owned, human-powered hauling and yard care service. PV Squared, worker-owned, values-driven, solar experts for 21 years. Brought to you by the Valley Alliance of Worker Co-ops, valleyworker.coop. Summer adventures are where memories are made. Add some flavor to your Massachusetts summer by eating like a local. Few things compare to a good meal at the end of the day, and farm-to-table restaurants deliver with fresh, locally-sourced produce prepared to perfection by skilled chefs. Support local farmers and restaurants by planning a special night out with friends or family. Need some inspiration? Map your fresh food adventure at eatlikealocalinma.org. Sponsored by Mass Farmers Markets. Welcome to NPR, Northampton Poetry Radio with Northampton erstwhile poet laureate, Rich Michelson, who has with him and us today a very special guest. I'm so thrilled to have this guest back on the show. Rich Michelson, the honor of this introduction is yours. Well, thank you, Bill, and thank you, Buzz. Uh, so uh, let's start here with John F. Kennedy. So John F. Kennedy said, if more politicians knew poetry and more poets knew politics. I am convinced the world would be a little better place in which to live. And we have with us today somebody who exemplifies that quote, Madeline May Kunin, the first woman to be elected governor of Vermont, the first Jewish person to be elected governor of Vermont. She served the first governor to be elected three terms, 
Uh, she was the U.S. Ambassador to Switzerland, the U.S. Deputy Secretary of Education, and started writing poetry after uh, her terms were over. She has four previous books, Living a Political Life, The New Feminist Agenda, Defining the Next Revolution for Women, Work and Family, Coming of Age, My Journey to the 80s, and now as you enter the 90s, we have a new book called Walk With Me. Madeline, welcome to our show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to join you. And uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about, why, oh, I forgot the most important thing. You went to UMass. So you're, uh, so you're, and the second most important thing, I think she, there's a book reading coming up. And she has a book reading coming up. Uh, we're going to talk about that in a second at the Brattleboro Literary Festival uh, in Vermont, just over the border. Madeline will be reading in, on Sunday, the 15th at 11 a.m. Again, that's in Brattleboro, downtown Brattleboro. Look at the Brattleboro Literary Festival website for Sunday at 11 a.m. Uh, there are over 60 writers during the festival. We'll talk about that in a moment. Madeline is reading with a Western Massachusetts writer uh, by the name of Richard Michelson. Uh, 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 and we oh, look forward erstwhile poet laureate and we look forward to reading together so Madeline let's start and talk about your poetry um, when did you start writing poetry well I, I dipped into poetry rather modestly uh, when I was younger but I became a real poet I believe as I got older and I was interested in writing about what it felt like to be older and uh, what changes were occurring within me, both mentally and physically. And I didn't know whether I was a real poet uh, until I was listed as a finalist for a poetry contest put on by independent bookstores in New England. So I thought if they see me as a poet, I must be one. <laughs> How old were you when you got that uh, listing? Well, I was in my late 70s. In your late 70s. Uh, and this is your second book of poetry. Uh, yes. The wor and uh, I should say that uh, yes, you're a real poet, that's for sure. The work is searing. The attention to language um, is just very detailed. And you take on subjects besides aging. You're looking at the world around you as clear as can be. You talk about your childhood um, and, uh, you know, uh, coming to this country. Uh, it's quite moving. I'd like to start with a poem so people can hear your voice and poetry, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. I think we'll have time for a few poems. But can we start with um, Kaddish? Oh, okay. I have to uh, find it in my book. <laughs> Sorry. Page Kaddish is, is probably my most emotional poem. Well... Uh, that's okay, how we start out actually. here at Northampton Poetry Radio. <laughs> um, we, we amp up the emotion. So I think it's page eight in your book. Yes, I have it. Kaddish, 
My father died when I was two and a half, some 85 years ago. I work hard to picture him alive so I can mourn him on the anniversary of his death and recite Kaddish according to law. Photographs, some brown, some black, are the only leavings of his life. Small, small snatches that I try to sew together into a garment that fits his that fits his elegant pose. He was a miser with memories and with his love for me. If he had really loved me, would he have killed himself by sliding over the side of a rowboat and letting him slip, himself slip into the blue waters of Lake Zurich? Was it sunny on that July day? So I like to think that the lake was that the lake sparkled that the first gulps of water tasted fine something in his tortured I'm sorry quenching his tortured thirst when did the water turn black when was he retching for air when did his feet scream that's my darkest poem. Well, that is a, such a powerful poem, um, uh, Madeline May Coonan. I, you know, I just was um, involved with a film festival where we screened uh, another Vermont poet, Ruth Stone's uh, film, and she, her husband committed suicide, and she wrote a similar poem that was just so gripping. Um, did you know Ruth Stone, the Vermont poet? I just met her briefly. I didn't know her well. She died at 94, and her work is just so moving to me. And I, uh, yeah, I think there are definite connections there. I think uh, Vermonters are plain spoken. I guess so. <laughs> I think that's it. Um, and you know, I, I, it, it's really um, your language in this poem is really searing. Uh, and and it, as you say, it's very emotional. Uh, most, you know, we'll talk a little bit about the rest of the book in a moment. And I'm sorry if I started you off in uh, what is a very emotional place. But I'm wondering um, if if the poetry is in a sense a reaction to the political language that you spoke for so many years um, when you had to confine yourself. Uh, you wrote your own speeches, and did you yeah. feel you wanted to let more of yourself into that life, or is it a totally different way of looking at the world? I think it's a different way of looking at the world, though there are, as you note, some connections, but... As a politician, I had to be um, defined by what I said and what I did, and I had to be careful what I said because any mistake would be publicized and held against me. As a poet, I'm more of an internal person, and I try to 
delve into what I was feeling and how to express it. So there's some connection, but it's mostly, I mean, the irony is that writing poetry is a private process while you're writing it. But then when you give a talk, you're making what was private public. So sometimes I'm wondering if I should be doing that, if I should just keep it private. But people seem to respond to it, that they find something in common in their own lives with what I'm writing. And of course, that's very gratifying because even though you write privately, you want to be understood publicly, at least to some extent. So that's why I'm doing these book talks, not only to sell books. You don't get rich selling books as a poet. <laughs> Welcome to the world of poetry. I'm sure you can uh, verify that. Yeah. But it's still good to be understood. Any artist still wants to be understood. You are listening to NPR, Northampton Poetry Radio, on Talk to Talk, WHMP. My guest is Madeline May Cunin, former three-term governor of Vermont, now poet, who will be reading Sunday, the 15th of October, in Brattleboro at the Brattleboro Literary Festival. Uh, she will be reading with the poet Rich Michelson me, uh, and i um, very much looking forward to it. I hope you all can join us. We will be right back in a moment and talk a little bit more to Madeline Kuman. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Last summer, Whalen Insurance finally did what a lot of insurance agencies around New England had done long ago. We partnered with a call center to handle routine things like a change of address. It went okay, but we're not going to continue. We found out that, no matter how simple or complicated the matter at hand, you prefer to talk to us. As one longtime Whalen Insurance client told me, the people at the call center are great, but they're not Amy. I like knowing I can call and talk to Amy every time. I guess I should have known. Local people and local service are what sets Whalen Insurance apart from those big 1-800 insurance companies. When you want a quote, when you need help with a claim, or anything else, just call. Or come to our office on King Street. Talk to Amy, or Kelly, or Mindy, or Valerie, or Lori. We tried the call center, you tried the call center, and we found out that you prefer talking to us. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. Call 586-1000. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. Do you love books? You'll love Broadside Bookshop. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Weinzick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Weinzick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and online at weinzicknursery.com. Jay Burnham here, voice of the Massachusetts Minutemen. Touchdown, Massachusetts! I just wanted to let you know that all of the UMass football action can be heard right here on our new flagship home for Massachusetts football. Here we go! 
It's WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. We continue NPR, Northampton Poetry Radio, with erstwhile poet laureate Rich Michelson, who has with him today a very special guest. They are reading together the former governor of, of Vermont, uh, Madeline Coonan, and Rich Michelson will be reading together. When and where and what will you be reading from, Rich? Uh, we are reading this coming Sunday, October 15th, at Brattleboro uh, Literary Festival at 11 o'clock. Uh, there will be... Th- uh, two, three days, actually, of uh, readings by poets, novelists, memoirists, uh, over 60 authors, uh, including some other Western Massachusetts authors. Tracy Kidder will be reading, Kelly Link, Holly Black, uh, and uh, many other of your favorite artists, uh, Allegra Goodman, Andre Debuse III. It is an incredible festival uh, come up all day. There are events. Madeline and myself will be reading again on Sunday, October 15th at 11 o'clock. She will be reading from her new book, Walk With Me. I will be reading from my new book, Sleeping As Fast As I Can. And uh, I think that, uh, I think we'll make a good pair, and I hope you can all come out and join us. Uh, Bill, did you have a question for Madeline? I did. Governor, you were politically involved for decades. You were the governor for three terms. You had had an extraordinary political career. What I'd like to understand more and better is what poetry brought to your life uh, as a politician, as a public official, as a public figure, and whether it was an entree to a different world or whether it was escapism in some ways. And I'd appreciate your thoughts about that. Well, that's a very interesting question, and um, I think the poetry was always in me, but I didn't have time or inclination to let it emerge from me and get into written form on paper. Uh, So I think think being literate and having a respect for words uh, the things you do as a writer uh, is very important in politics. So the more you ask me this question, the more I think about it, I think there is a connection between poetry and politics. But you sort of suppress that because poetry takes time. Politics, you almost always react instantaneously to what is going on. You can't say, I'm going to go in a room and think to myself what I think of this issue. You have to have an answer. And poetry, you can play with words. You can take your time with words. So um, I wrote my own speeches. I, I did my own press most of the time. I would get talking points, but from the talking points, I would craft a, a speech, and as time went on, I didn't even have to do that. I could just speak spontaneously, uh, which is what I do now. So I'm glad the poetry side of me has been released. Governor, did you, did you read poetry prior to your beginning to write it? 
or were those coterminous kind of events in your life, the reading and the writing of poetry? Well, I like to read poetry, um, and uh, I guess the coterminous, as you said. So um, I'd like to give um, give the audience another part of your work. Uh, I think that we'd like to hear it. Much of this book is about aging um, and your awareness of the changes in your body. Uh, it's also about finding new love at a late part in your life. So I'm wondering if you can read the first poem in the last section of your book, My Body. It's a short poem on page 77. What page is it? Uh, page 77. Okay. Sorry to take the time, but I'm, I'm get, getting to 77. Sorry for the delay. And um, Okay, I've got it. <laughs> it's a nice short poem. Yes. My body. My body surprises <laughs> me. Wearing out here, rejuvenated there. I am alive, more alive than I thought. Depends on where I look. I mean, that's one thing you're very conscious of as you age, how your body changes. Yes. And then, if you're lucky, you can still walk and give speeches and exercise and give poetry readings. Enough of. <laughs> and uh, one more short poem. T turn to page 87, and then we'll talk uh, a little bit more while we have a chance. Page 87 is a new love in old age. And I think you really, again, are coming. Um, you're, you're really okay. letting us into your life. This is a real private poem. <laughs> Well, what the heck, I guess. It's out there now, Governor. <laughs> it's in the book, so I have to follow through. A new love in old age. How can this be? I am young, open to him, surprised at myself, saying yes, yes, like Molly Bloom, wearing hyacinths in my hair. Yeah, that's that's a poem I had doubts about including. Uh, it's uh, it's beautiful. My guest is Madeline May Cunin, former governor of Vermont. Uh, Madeline will be reading at the Brattleboro Literary Festival on Sunday, October 15th at 11 a.m. Um, and before I go, one more question. Uh, how did it feel beating Bernie Sanders in the governor's race the first time? <laughs> well, Bernie and I go way back. <laughs> and what, what is interesting <laughs> He he campaigned on the same themes that he is enunciating now so many years later. But yeah. it turned into a three-way race when he ran against me for my second term. And I can just say it was not the most comfortable position <laughs> to be in. <laughs> well, um, thank you, Madeline, for joining us today. Um, and uh, you are 
an inspiration to us all, a new book coming out at age 90, I believe. Um, we That's look right. forward to hearing you, to seeing you this Sunday at the 15th at the Brattleboro Literary Festival. It's wonderful to, you're, you're an inspiration. It's wonderful to see this new chapter in your life. Thank you so much for joining us today on Northampton Poetry Radio. Thank you for having me. And thank you for convincing us that Rich Michelson is really a young man. <laughs> we appreciate it, Governor. See you on Great. Sunday. And thank you, Rich Michelson, for bringing Governor Madeline Kunin with us and to us today. She is inspirational. It's our annual co-op show, and live from River Valley Co-op, we'll be speaking with folks from Co-op Power in Downtown Sounds, Dean's Beans Old Creamery Co-op, Greenfield Farmers Co-op, Our Family Farms, the UMass 5 College Credit Union, Real Pickles, Valley Cooperative Business Association, and the River Valley Co-op. All this Wednesday on Talk the Talk. Get in on the conversation. Bill Newman, Buzz Eisenberg. Weekdays at 9 and again at 4. WHMP, News, Information, and the Arts. AA made all the difference in my life. I noticed that most of the goals I had as a kid were slipping by. I didn't feel like the person I hoped to be. After all those years of drinking, I, I really didn't know myself. When I was out there drinking, I was always looking for the next great party to make me feel all right. With AA, I found a better way of life. And I feel good in my everyday life, even without a drink in my hand. Alcoholics Anonymous. It works. Online and in-person meetings. For more, call 413-532-2111 or visit westernmassaa.org. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com on Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 And now we'll try that again with the mics on. And welcome to Talk to Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman, and the mics are on. And the mics are great. They're just great. There's so much that's great right now, including our monthly visit with the executive director of the Collaborative for Educational Services, Todd Gazda. Hello, Todd. Good morning, Buzz. It's always great to see you. So there's <laughs> a lot going on in the world of, uh, of education and the services that the Collaborative provides, but... Uh, we want to start our conversation with something that's a little bit disconcerting, a little disconcerting, quite disconcerting, and that is the situation with banning books that we're seeing ripple across the country, particularly in red states. Your thoughts as an educator? Well, the remarkable thing is it's not particularly in red states anymore. Uh, Massachusetts actually has one of the highest percentages of... Uh, one of the highest percentages? Yeah, in the, in the country. Um, and it's just a matter of, uh, you know, as a principal, I never saw it. Uh, my first six or seven years uh, as a superintendent, never saw it. Uh, and then it hit, and it hit hard. Uh, and it, it's not so much, um, you know, uh, people wanting to control what their kids read. Uh, it's what it's people wanting to control what all kids read. Uh, and that's, you know, really where it's the problem really comes in. It's ironic that we're talking about this because in chit-chat before we went on the air, before the microphones were turned on, mm. we were talking about your son, the 12-year-old, and his voracious appetite for <laughs> reading. And um, 
he likes books of what type? I'm just curious. You know, he t- he tends uh, to read right now. He's into fantasy. Uh, or mystery uh, tends to be where he goes more. Some history, uh, he also, okay, well, you know, perfect transparency. I was a history teacher, and I love fantasy. So I, I kind of understand where he gets it. Uh, but, you know, we have never sought to limit what he reads. My parents never limited what I read. To a large extent, student uh, students and children will self-select uh, what they feel is appropriate for themselves. Um, there are obviously limits, uh, and parents should be aware of what their children are reading. Um, but if they read something that, uh, you know, has uh, sexual content in it, and they're not ready to, you know, consider that or explore that, it makes them uncomfortable, and they stop and move somewhere else. And so uh, that's an important factor. As a parent and an educator, do you screen in any way? Are you aware of what your child is reading? Yes, I am. Uh, and one of the interesting things, just recently, as a matter of fact, the end of last week, uh, we got him a subscription to Kindle Unlimited, and I, his face absolutely lit up. And he's got a Kindle now, and he has access to 4 million books. Um, now, do I screen every book? No. Um, but what I do, what happens is it pops up in my feed and so I can see what he's reading, uh, and then we can talk about it and we can explore it. Uh, and that allows him the flexibility and some freedom, uh, with some adult supervision. I'd like to get to the, uh, question of what happens in a public school when there is a demand from a parent or an outside group that a book be removed. I've been being, mm. I've been engaged in a lot of speaking engagements across Western Mass recently on this topic, and I'd like to know from you, as a former superintendent, as a longtime educator and school administrator, what happens in Massachusetts when there's a demand to remove a book from the school library? So typically, and most policies are relatively similar, uh, and so there's, there's really kind of a systematic approach when somebody has a concern about a library book. Um, because let's face it, librarians can't read every book that they uh, bring into their libraries, and so they rely on resources that are out there for librarians to help vet these books to make sure they're age-appropriate, content-appropriate, um, and Sometimes things mistakes get made, and so there is a safeguard in place to make sure that there's proper vetting of the books that are in uh, our school libraries. So typically, a person has a concern about a book, and as I said, the policies are pretty uniform. The Massachusetts Association of School Committees puts out model policies, most of which are largely adopted, maybe certain tweaks are made by school districts, but it always starts, or should start, with a communication between that parent and the librarian. Assuming it's a parent and not an outside right-wing group targeting anything that has to do with LGBTQ issues and the like. Yes. Uh, and that's a relatively new occurrence, um, for, particularly for us as educators. But we have to treat it the same regardless of where that concern comes from. Um, so even if it's an outside group, uh, they're required to follow the same process as if it was a parent in the community uh, or even a teacher, because sometimes teachers might say, whoops, what's this book doing here? So the first step is always a conversation with the librarian. Sometimes that resolves the issue. Maybe something did get through, uh, and it's not age-appropriate for where it is. 
the second step in that process, if uh, the concern isn't resolved, um, is to go to the building principal and have that discussion with the principal. Um, sometimes, and I would say often, usually, hopefully, in conjunction with the librarian, so that the you know the conversation can happen about what the is in that book and put the you know concerning passage often in context. Uh, if that doesn't happen, it goes to um, the superintendent who typically will, uh, most policies call for the formation of a committee. And that committee, uh, I think the model policy has uh, two school committee members, the building principal, a librarian, uh, and when I put a committee together, I made sure it wasn't the librarian who made the initial decision. So it was another one of the building librarians uh, and two teachers. And they all read the book, get together, have a discussion, and determine whether or not uh, that book is appropriate to be in the library. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't have any sexual content, uh, but, you know, is there appropriate literary merit? And I think that's where the discussion between pornography and, you know, an appropriate work of literature that has some sexual components in it uh, really comes down to. And right now, people are wanting, individuals and groups are wanting to eliminate any uh, mention of sexuality in any book. Well, Executive um, Director Todd, yes. yes. So what are the criteria for determine, appro determining appropriateness? I would think as an educator, exposing children to as many different universes as they could be exposed to is um, makes for a fuller person. Um, at the same time, there is some content at some age that's inappropriate, but is the fact that there are gay people in the world and there, there are some people who, who feel that the gender they were assigned at birth is not uh, the gender they feel comfortable in, is that sometimes inappropriate for kids to learn about? In my mind, no. Uh, it's not. Um, and so my question is why It not? needs to be developmentally appropriate. It needs to be approached in the manner with which the children can understand it uh, where they are at. So you approach those conversations, particularly about gender and sexuality, very differently with a kindergarten or first grade student than you would with a middle school student or with a high school student. Um, you know, the language you use, how you describe it, uh, the depth you go into the discussions is very different at each of those levels. Um, and right now, where we're seeing some of the biggest challenges really is in middle school because middle school <coughs> students come into the um, building as young elementary school students and leave as high school students. And that transformation over that three or four year period is dramatic. The development that happens for those students during that time period is dramatic and it happens at a different pace for each student. So what might be appropriate for a sixth grader um, might not, or what might be appropriate for an eighth grader might not be appropriate for a sixth grader. Or it might be appropriate for one sixth grader but not another. And so, to a large extent, what we're seeing, though, is uh, parents expressing a concern. And it's not that I don't want my child to read it. It's that I don't want any child to read it. And they're, my point... They're yeah. saying something different, Todd. They're saying, yeah. I don't want my child to read it. I don't want any child to read it. I don't want any child in this school to be able to look at the book. It's different. The question is, is the book on the shelf and or can this parent or outside group 
successfully make a demand to remove the book from the library. That's what we're talking about. Correct. And you're 100% right. They're trying to stop anybody from looking at it and remove that book from the shelf. One of the components to these policies also is that the book remains on the shelf throughout that challenge. Otherwise, uh, what would happen is all you would have to do is challenge the books. And they could challenge like 50 books, and all of a sudden you got to pull those books off the shelves, which is what they want to happen. Um, and so you got to have to hold the line that they stay on there until the challenges work their way through. And it does take some time um, because, you know, the committee has to be formed and they have to read the book. Often these books and the attacks are really going against books with LGBTQ plus themes. Uh, and it's not so much, they just, you know, there's often a religious component to it, uh, to the concern that's being expressed. But, you know, at the end of the day, fully respect individuals' and families' religious beliefs. However, what cannot be allowed is for them to impose those religious beliefs on others. Uh, and that's what we're seeing the attempt to be to have you know done these days. It's chilling. It's it's not just frightening. It's infuriating. We were talking with Executive Director Todd Gaza. He is with the Collaborative for Educational Services. We're going to continue our conversation, which I'm really looking forward to. Right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to whmp.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on whmp.com. A co-op is a trusted and proven way to strengthen the local economy. Cooperatives are locally owned and controlled. The members own it, or the workers own it. October is co-op month. Check out our local food co-ops, credit unions, worker co-ops, and farmer co-ops. When you bank with UMass Five College Credit Union, you're supporting people in our community and achieving their goals and dreams. That's because UMass Five follows the cooperative model. Your deposits turn into local loans, home, auto, and small business. Bank the cooperative way with UMass Five. What's the role of creativity in mental health and well-being? ServiceNet's Art Show explores the ways creativity connects to mental health. ServiceNet's Art Show, the opening reception is this Thursday, 4 to 7, with 35 artists from the ServiceNet community. Everyone is welcome. The opening reception features music by Ada O'Brien and food by ServiceNet's Rooster Cafe. The role of creativity in mental health. ServiceNet's Art Show, opening reception Thursday, 4 to 7, at ServiceNet, Olander Drive, Northampton. Are you an immigrant worried about your future? Do you want to change your life? At Center for New Americans, you can take English classes for free. They help immigrants with jobs, licenses, healthcare, as well as immigration and citizenship. CNA helps you create a better future. Visit our website at cnam.org. Call 413-587-0084. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. 
And we are back with Todd Gassner, the executive director of the Collaborative for Educational Services. And we're talking about something that, well, um, I wish we didn't have to talk about banning books for children. Um, I am just um, so concerned because of a lot of reasons. Sometimes it's something that has sexual content that people who want to impose their belief system on other people and other people's children wish to ban from school libraries and other libraries for that matter. But sometimes it's just uh, catch-22. Sometimes it's things that they just uh, are afraid will get people thinking in a different way than the, the, the thought system which those banners wish to impose on other people. And, and one of my concerns when we're talking about children is by depriving them access of something that might just really grab them, it impacts on their ability to become readers. Not only grab them, but, uh, you know, each student should see some of themselves reflected in the curriculum and the content of that curriculum within our public schools. Uh, and so if I'm a, a, a teenager um, exploring my gender, uh, exploring my sexuality, um, and where do I go? You know, oftentimes books are a safe place to learn about things, to question things, to question themselves, to explore who they are as individuals. And that you're okay. Correct, in it's that okay it's not strange or odd or different, uh, in that I'm not alone uh, in this. Uh, it helps them process feelings that they're going through um, and can, is often the starting point for discussions with trusting adults that they have in their lives. And so all of that is critical uh, for the student's developmental growth uh, as individuals. And so this material must be in our libraries. Um, and it must be readily accessible. Bill, you were referencing some legislation. Well, I, I'd like to make the point that what we're talking about here really is the potential to remove a book from a library, from a school library and or a public library. And that is very different from the decision to put a book on the shelf. Correct. Which is a professional decision made by librarians and educators to decide this book belongs on our shelf. What we're talking about here is the challenge brought by individuals or groups saying, I want that book off the shelf, remove it, censor it now. And that's different. And the legal considerations are very different. Removing a book is usually done because someone doesn't want the content, contrary to what the educators and the librarians say, should be available. And that is what is dangerous about this, because it is censorship per se. The decision to put, on, put a book on the shelf, that's up to educators and librarians. The decision to take it off should not be in the hands of, of a would-be censor, and that's what this is about. The legislation you're talking about is a bill proposed by Senator Julian Sear, who's a gay Democrat from Truro, and has proposed a bill entitled An Act Regarding Free Expression. It prohibits book bans in Massachusetts in two ways. It prevents book removals for personal or political views in both schools and public libraries, and it also sets up criteria for removal of a book with a very high standard for removal, which I think protects the right to read and the right to learn. So that bill is pending. Whether it will uh, survive the legislative process, it is now at the Joint Committee on Education awaiting a hearing, I can't predict, but it is in fact an excellent bill protecting the right to read, the right to learn, 
and for the right to protect books remaining on shelves during a challenge to them in both public libraries and school libraries. And oftentimes, you know, attacking the book is the first you know, is the tip of the iceberg. Uh, then they, then um, you know, individuals and groups go after the inclusive practices in our, our schools. Um, you know, our discussion of race in schools. It's it's become all wrapped up into the same discussion. Um, and unfortunately, what happens some you know in instances is that uh, they'll challenge a book. They'll go through the process if if you can get them to go through the process because a lot of times, um, you know, it's they just show up at school committee meetings and want to continue to show up at school committees and want the books removed without going through the process. But sometimes the process will be utilized and they don't get the result they want and then they'll never use it again because it's a biased process. Uh, and so, you know, it, it becomes challenging and that's where you have to hold that line. But that's where the attacks can often become very personal. The attack has also changed in recent years because in years past, what would happen is a parent would come and say, I'm offended by this passage in this book and there would be a challenge to a book by a parent. Got it. Now what you have is a group an outside group coming in say, here's a list of 50 or 60 books and you should get rid of all of them and I want them censored while this process goes on. Yep. And that is incredibly dangerous. And going through searches of our card catalogs because most schools have a, the availability, you know, that is available online and it is public information. And so they'll search for any book that whatever group they're listening to on a national or regional level is telling them, uh, these are the books you need to go after and they'll search and try to find them and then um, you know, that's oftentimes where you'll end up with those long lists. Sometimes you'll end up with lists that you don't even have the books in the library uh, because they pulled the list that off of some website. Well, um, um, we didn't talk about this before, but if someone is listening uh, right now who has real concerns about book banning, about censorship, as Bill just described it, uh, what do they do? Who do they go to? Who can they write to? First of all, you Librarians are amazing educators, uh, and they're kind, caring, compassionate people. And this is part of what they learn. How do you approach these conversations about books? And so a lot of times I've had parents go concerned about a book, have a discussion with the librarian, and walk away fine and understanding uh, the reason that that book is in the library if they're willing to listen uh, and accept. And so my, my recommendation is, Talk to the librarian or talk to a librarian if it's not a specific concern with uh, something in your, uh, pub, you know, your child's public school. Todd Gaza, I always just uh, relish the opportunity to discuss education, in this case, uh, book banning with you. And thank you so much for once again uh, educating us. Always my pleasure. That's Todd Gaza. We're going to be right back. We're going to be talking about the three-ring ruckus that's going to be benefiting big brothers and big sisters right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A public hearing will be held today at the State House to discuss a redrafted gun reform bill. The bill has been months in the making, and it includes tracking and tracing weapons, as finding where illegal weapons are coming from will help get them off the streets. Also in the bill is a process for ensuring training for firearm owners and clarity on where the weapons may be carried. 
Several peace organizations gathered last night in Northampton to condemn the violence against the Israeli and Palestinian people. Massachusetts Peace Action hosted the rally along with local Palestinians called Rally for Palestinian Rights and Sovereignty. The group is calling on the U.S. to stop giving aid to Israel. Residents at the Walter Salvo House in Northampton are dealing with a bed bug infestation. Northampton Housing Authority Executive Director Kara Leeper tells Mass Live they are heat treating apartments and are doing their best to keep it under control. The laundry and community rooms have been closed to prevent further spread. Hadley is reevaluating costs for a new DPW headquarters. The select board will now ask residents to approve a $225,000 appropriation to pay for a project manager and schematic designs rather than pay for a $3 million outlay. An open house is scheduled Saturday from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. at the current DPW so residents can learn about current conditions. And police are investigating a three-car accident in Chicopee this morning that has shut down a portion of Granby Road. No word yet on any injuries. Mixture of sun and clouds today with a chance for a few sprinkles or light showers in the afternoon, a high of 60 to 64. Scattered clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 50s, an overnight low of 38 to 44. Mostly sunny tomorrow, 64 to 68, partly to mostly sunny on Thursday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5 and 1400. Join me noon to three Eastern time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Rutabaga, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You want the very best opportunities for your child. Given the amount of time children spend in school each day, you want your child to be inspired, to be engaged, to love going to school. At Bement, each student experiences this every day. The Bement School in Deerfield is a close-knit community of students from around the valley and across the globe. Kindergarten through ninth grade, learning from each other in the classroom, rooting for each other on the athletic field, and celebrating each other on the stage. We are local, we are global, and our differences make us stronger. We interact face-to-face, -face, share meals together every day, and open doors for one another. The true essence of your child's time at Bement is preparing for a life of integrity, of significance, of joy. Financial aid and transportation are available to help make a Bement school education possible. I'm Kim Laughlin, Director of Admission. Please contact me or visit our website. Bement will be the best investment you make in your child's future. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back. You know, um, there's a wonderful event that's going to be happening, the three-ring ruckus to... Woohoo! We got a woohoo <laughs> over here. To uh, it, it's a fundraiser for Big Brothers Big Sisters. It's so much fun. It's going to be happening on October 
14th, which is a Saturday, the suggested donation is a whopping $5. So I asked, uh, hey, Ann Walsh, the uh, director, would you please uh, come on the show and talk about the Three Ring Ruckus? And then during the break, I looked outside and uh, Ann asked some people, would you like to support the Three Ring Ruckus? And I think that the response was, Everybody in Hampshire County wants to support <laughs> the three ring, and they're all here in the studio. Yeah, so. we're and Walsh, tell us about what is this crew doing here? Oh my goodness! Well, we're ex- so excited about the three ring ruckus. This is our second annual, and um, I'm Ann Walsh from Big Brothers Big Sisters of Hampshire County, and I'm the director of um, development. And we've got some great people in the studio with us. Some of our supporters, they're not only supporters of our event, but they're such great supporters of the community. Um, I, I want to let them uh, take over the mic, as, as you say. But um, I just want to say that this event is for kids and families. There's plenty to do for grown-ups, lots to do for kids, like making slime and painting pumpkins. And I'll talk more about that in a bit. Uh, but let's talk to some of our sponsors, and our, we have a couple board members here, too. It is going to be a ruckus. So, Lindsay Labonte, uh, what are you doing here? Sure. How you doing? Lindsay Labonte, I manage Applied Mortgage in Northampton. We've been a longtime supporter of Big Brothers Big Sisters. I myself had volunteered as a young kid at the Bolathon. So mm-hmm. this event really just has something for everybody to do. I brought my one-year-old and my three-year-old last year. They had a blast. Really looking forward to it. Okay, uh, maybe we could just play past the mic. Maybe um, it's a ruckus in here. <laughs> We're having a great time. Yeah, I'm Christine Lau. I'm on the board of Big Brothers Big Sisters for about 15 years. A great organization. Um, I'm inspired every day by our bigs and what they do for our littles. We have big little moments, and it just talks about what an impact one person can make. So every dollar, every buck, every five bucks that comes our way, helps to make a match, and helps change kids' lives. How does it change kids' lives? Um, Mentorship. So they have one adult that they can really relate to, someone who cares about them, takes them seriously. There was one kid who went, saw his big graduate from college. No one in his family ever went to college before, but he did. Kind of inspirational. Yep, it's amazing. And Christine Lau, right? Jennifer. I am Jennifer Ewers. I'm an insurance. I can't keep track of this. <laughs> okay. It's a ruckus in here. So I'm Jennifer Ewers. I'm the board president. I'm an insurance broker with Fink and Paris Insurance. And I just want to follow up with uh, Christine's message about the power of mentorship. I think we can all look at ourselves and our, our jobs and our careers and just think back to the folks that gave us a nudge that helped get us where we wanted to go. I mean, even today, you know, when Ann put the invite out, you know, do you want to speak? I, I think back to, you know, when I was a, a kid in school and I sat in the back corner, you know, and I didn't want that attention, but, but I had the professors, I had the people saying, use your voice, you've earned your seat. And it's, it's so beneficial. So I just want everyone to think back and, and remember those relationships. And, and those are mentors. And that's what Big Brothers Big Sisters is doing. We're just giving that nudge, giving someone an adventure buddy, sharing some positive support. Mm-hmm. We want to help everybody. Mm-hmm. It's really incredible. Ann Walsh asked, would you like to speak on behalf of uh, the Three Ring Ruckus that's going to happen on October 14th? The line goes out WHMP around the building. 
And so I'm not going to guess on people's That's names. That's okay. My name's Sarah. Sarah. Thank you, I'm Sarah. Sarah Roberts. I work for People's Bank. Um, we are a sponsor of the Three Ring Ruckus and a regular sponsor of a lot of Big Brothers, Big Sisters events. Um, of, like everyone else here said, I think mentorship is just so important, which is why their mission is so amazingly important. I'm lucky enough to work for a company that does a lot of sponsorships. And so we get to sponsor a lot of Big Brothers, Big Sisters events. Um, last year, I was able to attend the Three Ring Ruckus. It was a ton of fun. We had a tent out. We played cornhole. We did popcorn. Um, there was so many wonderful things to do at the event. It was a really great time. So, you know, it's just important for us to stay involved with the, the nonprofits in the community that make a big difference, and Big Brothers, Big Sisters is one of them. Tara Brewster, you've been involved with Big Brothers, Big Sisters and previous events like the Three Ring Ruckus. Why? Um, well, at Greenfield Savings Bank, we also support a lot of really amazing organizations in the community, and I feel very lucky to be a part yeah. of it. Um, but I was thinking about this today, and all I could keep thinking about was Whitney Houston. And she said it best when, <laughs> I believe the children are our future, teach them well and let them lead the way, show them all the beauty they possess inside, because the kids are our future. So I was thinking about singing it, but... I won't. I was so. going to say, but will you <laughs> sing it? I won't. But I won't. I, it's not my show, so I can't, I can't I, sing it. I think it. you just did sing it. <laughs> so, Ann Walsh, what's going to happen on the 14th of, of October? You name it, it's going to happen. You name it, it's going to happen. Uh, we've got live music from Grayson for uh, adults and kids. He's really upbeat. I heard him at an Amherst Chamber event, and it was so fun. Um, we're going to have a corn shucking contest. Um, we're going to do pumpkin painting. Cape making, uh, slime making. We have a yo-yo performance. And the Pioneer Valley Jump Rope team is going to be there. They are so fun. Everyone got in on that. That's, it was so great. Uh, we'll have a bubble, um, a bubble zone. And this year we also have a craft fair. And the craft fair is happening inside the, um, the Florence, Florence, yes, Florence Civic Center. And can we just talk about weather for a minute? I mean, we can, but before we do... You skipped something. What did I skip? Slime making. Yes. <laughs> what is slime making? Well, it's beyond me. I think it's magic and a little bit of glitter. Um, we have <coughs> we have a, a professional slime maker that will be there. I think it involves glue and, I don't know, magic. Some contact lens solution, yeah. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe some shaving foam and definitely some glitter. Yes, and I don't think the recipe can actually be shared because it is kind of top secret kid world kind of I stuff. I know. We don't want everybody making slime everywhere. <laughs> yeah. So what about the weather? So, I, okay, we've had enough rain to, I mean, enough already. But I looked at the weather forecast. And not only do we have tents and inside stuff and a covered porch, but the rain's not supposed to happen until later on in the afternoon. So pretend like you're ducks. Come on out. Don't worry about the rain. Uh, it's going to be a blast. And it is free with a suggested donation. So we don't want anyone not to be able to come. Come no matter what. And have some fun with your, with your kiddos. They're, they're going uh, crazy being inside with all the rain. So come on out. We'll take good care come of Come on out. All 310 people in the studio say, <laughs> come on out. So one more time. It's going to be when and where? Yeah. Okay. It's going to be on Saturday. That's this Saturday, October 14th from 11 to 3 at the Florence Civic Center in Florence, beautiful Florence, Massachusetts. And do people have to have made their $5 donation prior to coming? No, 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 no. You don't even have to donate. We'd love it. But we really want you just to come and have fun and bring your kiddos, your grandkiddos, 
um, and just, you know, really be part of the future, like Tara Brewster said, you know, because an investment in our kids is an investment in our community uh, because they are our future, and they're all just adorable. So come on over. What a great place to leave it. It's the Three Ring Ruckus this weekend, this <laughs> Saturday. Please be there. Thank you all for coming in. Buzz, do you want to do some corn chucking right now? Some corn chucking? Uh, I think shucks. <laughs> We're going to be right back. We're going to be talking about affordable housing in Amherst right after this. to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Last summer, Whalen Insurance finally did what a lot of insurance agencies around New England had done long ago. We partnered with a call center to handle routine things like a change of address. It went okay, but we're not going to continue. We found out that no matter how simple or complicated the matter at hand, you prefer to talk to us. As one longtime Whalen Insurance client told me, the people at the call center are great, but they're not Amy. I like knowing I can call and talk to Amy every time. I guess I should have known. Local people and local service are what sets Whalen Insurance apart from those big 1-800 insurance companies. When you want a quote, when you need help with a claim, or anything else, just call. Or come to our office on King Street. Talk to Amy, or Kelly, or Mindy, or Valerie, or Lori. We tried the call center, you tried the call center, and we found out that you prefer talking to us. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. Call 586-1000. The future of joint pain relief is here. It's QC Kinetics, advanced regenerative medicine. This is amazing stuff. If you've been told more steroids or surgery are your only options, don't move so fast. Get a second opinion and learn more about how you can harness your body's own healing agents to attack that joint pain. I'm talking about lasting relief. QC Kinetics doesn't mask the pain. These treatments go to the very root of the problem. Using concentrated healing properties placed directly in your aching joints to restore and repair that damaged tissue. Imagine living your life this fall with no more pain in your knees, hips, shoulder, or back, and without drugs, downtime, or surgery. Listen, life is about motion, and QC Kinetics is giving people their lives back with these all-natural treatments. Call the local medical professionals and get a free consultation today. QC Kinetics, the nation's leader in regenerative medicine. Call 413-992-5450. That's listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. There is in Amherst a, um, well, some say a crisis. It's about affordable housing. There is a board, which uh, is a body that makes recommendations, of which uh, the town manager, Paul Bachelman, is an ex officio member. And the board is having a lot of trouble completing its mission, uh, I think calling in to discuss this with us uh, is Ashley Jensen, one of the uh, board members. Uh, hello, Ashley. Hello, Buzz and Bill. Uh, this is Ashley. Can you hear me? We sure can, and thank you so much for joining us. So um, you have been, uh, the last time we talked, Ashley, you've been um, watching uh, the 
affair involving the longstanding uh, concerns about the school committee in Amherst and the problems with the LGBTQ plus uh, issues surrounding the schools and um, what some people feel is a lack of uh, transparency, especially since the, the report, the investigatory report that was performed wasn't released because of uh, ostensible personnel concerns, uh, violating per privacy of uh, employment, uh, people who are employed in the Amherst schools. And you were quite struck by that, you told me, because you're having the same situation, the same problems with lack of transparency and lack of information in the affordable housing arena in Amherst, with which you're so concerned as an affordable housing board member. So could you talk to us first about what your concerns are about the information you feel you're not getting? Sure. And as far as I know, we're just looking for data in terms of um, the way, you know, Amherst Town must permit each apartment complex. It has to have you know, set aside what percentage has low-income housing, like Section 8. There's many different kinds of low-income housing, for instance. There's Section 8, there's Massachusetts vouchers, there's tax credit apartments. There's apartment complexes where the whole thing is already inherently 30% of one's income. So all of those go into a kind of low-income housing stock, which the town of Amherst must, by the state's measure, have 30, no, have 10% of low-income housing because it, it might not be every town, but it definitely is Amherst. We are mandated to have 10% at least. So let me and just interrupt so, for one second. So what happened is there was a statute that passed in the 90s, and it said that if a community uh, has 10% of its housing uh, qualified for what's called affordable housing, you just described some of those criteria, Section 8, qualifies for a tax credit, et cetera, et cetera, then, um, that, then there are advantages to the community um, for that 10%, for meeting that 10% standard. And you're saying that Amherst, there's no way to know whether or not Amherst is really doing what it says it's doing, which is satisfying the 10%. Right. And yet, I, I believe that Amherst is saying that we are satisfying that, but there, how would we actually know if there isn't, like... There's no Excel spreadsheet even being gathered on each project as it's happening. So there's not a historical record because, you know, that would hopefully just be public. But there isn't even one going forward because we've asked, I've been on the Affordable Trust for two years, and I've asked the entire time. And so certainly they've known from me and perhaps other people that this is something they need to be capturing because each new project, you know, they could just go forward with it. But they should have been going back with it, too, because you would think that in the permit process, they would have to know, you know, like, how many tax credit apartments are there? And So, so how, I, I just want to back up. There, when you mentioned sure. the trust, there is a, um, an affordable housing trust fund, right? Could you describe that and just briefly describe what that is in Amherst? Well, it is a voluntary board that, um, you know, it's not, it's just appointed by the town manager for two years term or perhaps a little more because I just came in in the middle. And we are an advisory board about the affordable housing projects. And 
kind of not just projects, but kind of like strategies that the town is using to gain more affordable housing. I certainly want, you know, to talk a little bit more in ways that they're, you know, to be creative with affordable housing, not just building affordable housing, which is, you know, it's mostly centered on building affordable housing. I certainly think it needs to also think about the quality of life in affordable housing. It are, is the town meeting the state's, you know, mandates, et cetera, et cetera. There's, there's a lot of levels to affordable housing and building is maybe kind of the most prevalent one, but it's not the only one for sure. Could you explain a little bit more, please, what it is that you don't have and why a public records request to the town of Amherst saying, tell us about your affordable housing and what you've constructed and how you've complied. Give us all those documents. Why that wouldn't solve this problem? Well, I would love to do that. I didn't even know that was possible, um, for one thing. But it would be great. It just seems like, and so what I'm gathering is that perhaps in several realms, Paul Bockelman or the town of Amherst isn't totally being transparent with the information either they have or they're not even gathering it. And so I think that's going to take a little bit of investigating on someone's part that isn't, you know, I'm just one board member. And so, you know, it's not like I have a lot of investigation experience. You know, I just, I don't, I don't understand why it hasn't been just part of the permitting process to have an Excel spreadsheet where every kind of affordable housing, you know, that they have is on the Excel spreadsheet so that we know the numbers and so that we can tell, are they meeting their, you know, state mandate? How many Section 8, you know, how many Section 8, you know, apartments are there in Amherst? We, We just don't know. Well, Ashley Jensen, uh, what's confusing to me is that the town manager uh, is an ex officio member of the same board on which you sit, the Affordable Housing Board, and is involved in the trust fund. Isn't it in his interest as a board member to make the board aware of how many Section 8 housing units there are in Amherst or uh, how many uh, qualified for the tax credit uh, as a tax as an apartment uh, in a new project. Isn't it worth it for Paul Bachelman to make that information yeah, I, known to his board? Well, I I would really think so. I mean, this is maybe a small slice of, slice of things that we are not being made aware of. There's another kind of issue that just came up, you know, very lately about how can CPA or, you know, community preservation association funds be used? Can they be used to help um, people directly get into their affordable housing? Not They can be used, of course, to build affordable housing. Can they, can they be used to help the individual person who now is going to be going into an affordable um, housing unit? That needs some clarity. There's just a lot of creative ways that I think that we could we're not going to, like, for one thing, we're not building our way out of affordable housing. We're not building a 1,000 units a year. We're building 100 units a year. That's a tiny fraction of the 1,000 units a year that we need. So we're going to have to use many, many, many kind of strategies. But then if we don't have a grip on, like, what is actually the reality, we don't know what we're doing. 
And so, I, you know, it's been two years and a little that I've been trying to even get a grip on what is happening with very little help from the town, which sounds like maybe this is a little typical of, you know, they're not helping much. Ashley Jensen, why is affordable housing in Amherst important to you? Well, it has a lot to do with who can even live in Amherst. It's, um, you know, ostensibly it's a college town, but, you know, college students move away. Might we want to keep a few college students with their brand new degrees and a lot of um, progressive fervor? You know, do they want to stay? What about low-income people? What about single parents? What about the elderly who just, you know, even if you have a house, you just had your taxes raised by $500 per, you know, property taxes because the tax base isn't there much anymore. So your taxes go up in in part because there's not a lot of workers who cannot afford to live in Amherst. It, you know, who lives in Amherst and how much they're paying for to live here is has a lot to do with who Amherst is. It's kind of like our identity as as a town. Is this an issue that's come bef- that you've brought before the uh, the town council? I've tried many times because, in some ways, the the affordable housing trust works a little bit under the CRC, which is the community resource center. That is kind of our governing, you know, town committee, and they every once in a while, I mean, once or twice in two years, have a joint meeting with us. And that consists of um, town council members, but never the whole, you know, the whole town council has ever taken up affordable housing, at least in the two and a half years that I've been paying attention to this um, issue. And I think it's very important. It's at least as important as schools. I mean, you know, some people go to elementary schools and everybody has housing. So just about everyone in Amherst needs to know about housing and their affordability, even if they're homeowners, you know, like they just got their taxes raised and that they might want to know about affordable housing options. You know, yes, I think I wish the town council would take it up as a whole. Does your uh, board, Ashley Jensen, does it have strategic and long range plans that, um, that uh, you could find out where Amherst is on the way to satisfying uh, these plans? Well, so that is kind of another issue. We are supposed to be doing a strategic planning meeting, but it has not been put on the calendar yet. There is the trust board itself is behind on, on our work in many different ways. Like it, it has an educational piece to the community we're behind on. It has a strategic piece that has not happened in the two years that I've been on it. Um, we have, it, it's a lot of work. It's, it's totally unpaid. We have chairs that I believe are not doing the amount of work that they need to be doing. It, 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 I believe it needs some restructuring, but I also believe it needs um, some people that will take on the work and delegate. So I'm, you know, the whole trust needs a little bit of real attention to what it does, what it can do, 
and perhaps, you know, some restructuring of like the whole thing. Well, tell me this, because I am confused. What can this board do? If you have a legal obligation or the town has a legal obligation, I guess, either to build or to move towards 10 percent of the housing stock being affordable housing. What can this board do to make that a reality? Well, I we're not very informed about that. I, I mean, in in my opinion, you know, this is a one opinion we're not going to just build out of it because that means building thousands of um, units a year, which we definitely aren't doing. We are going to need to put people into empty apartments. This, this is where the Amherst housing authority also comes up, which is not, it is affordable housing, but it's not exactly what the trust does because that is like a separate entity that we have now just found out has thousands over, you know, the state of Massachusetts empty Apartments. Apartments. We need to be placing people in in empty apartments. We need to be making sure the data is collected and up to date. We need to be sure that there's a worker. There's There's supposed to be an affordable housing worker that is dedicated to this. We have been talking about this in the trust for like eight months now. And as far as I know, the town of Amherst has not hired that worker. There needs to be someone working on this, like that's their full-time job. And that they work with the trust to figure out these strategies. It is a much bigger job than just like the one time a month that the trust, you know, meets. And we need chairs that are really quite ambitious about finding out the creative ways we can deal with it and then delegating to the whole trust about ways to do it. And these are volunteer positions, you know, we work and, you know, we have other things to do. So it's, we need to rethink affordable housing in Amherst because it really is important. And the the town, frankly, is not like working with us. It's not really doing the job. It sounds like you're a very frustrated board member uh, who wants to reach Um, out and let people know that you're a frustrated board member. Are there other board members or members of the council uh, or other allies that you have that are as frustrated as you and want to see something happen? Absolutely. Um, I find that Tim McCarthy, he's actually the head of the um, Craig store, which is, you know, the homeless shelter. And, you know, he knows from his perspective a lot about affordable housing because he helps people get into the unhoused, you know, get need to get into affordable housing, like in an emergency situation. Um, Pamela Rooney um, is a town councilor that has done more to even just attend the meetings. You know, we have one meeting a month. So a lot of the council members aren't even attending that one meeting. So, and it really, that really frustrates me. Well, I know, you know, we, on Talk to Talk, we've tried to focus on affordable housing. It's an important issue for every community around here, certainly for a community like Amherst. Um, and uh, Ashley Jensen, I mean, Bill made a good suggestion about public records requests, and certainly if you have a town council member and uh, someone who is the uh, director of the, the shelter, uh, it sounds like they're, this won't be the last time that we hear about the affordable housing problem in Amherst, but I thank you for joining us today, Ashley Jensen. I thank uh, all of you listeners for joining us, too, um, here on Talk to Talk. We'll see you tomorrow. Thank you so this much. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. 
Do you Want know to what's know happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Downtown Sounds? Correct. They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Downtown Sounds Workers Co-op, a music store with new and used instruments and lessons. Live online or live in person. First lessons free when you buy an instrument. Plus, repairs of musical instruments and equipment. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Want to know more about local history, literature, and education? Hilltown Families' bi-monthly Learning Ahead Cultural Itineraries offer an easy way to delve into Western Mass culture and traditions. These new seasonal itineraries are produced in collaboration with a humanities scholar and community education expert, offering ways for self-directed teens and lifelong learners to engage. 